Welcome to the St. Andrew Sunday Morning Sermon Podcast. No matter who you are, where you've been, what you believe, or whether you even believe at all, you belong here. That was awesome. Thanks, y'all. Listen to the intro to the scripture today. In Luke 16, we encounter the only character in any of Jesus's parables who is given a name. It's the poor man named Lazarus. The gospel writer in Luke does all kind of things to relate to the readers Jesus's overriding concern for the poor, reminding us that the poor are not only a, a, a They're not a one-size-fits-all economic category that we can describe in broad strokes, but each one of them has a name. Each one of them is God's beloved. This parable packs in a whole lot of theology. There's nothing subtle here about the setup. The interaction between the first man, who is so wealthy that it would put Bezos and Buffett to shame, and then Lazarus speaks volumes. And yet there's more to the story. In Luke 16, we have the height of riches and the depths of abject poverty. No shades of nuance here. Then the men die and their roles are reversed. And this is where the parable really takes off. This powerful parable concludes with the questions. What will we do with the knowledge we have by faith? What kind of lives will we lead? Let's hear now the word of God. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen, who feasted every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he saw where he was and was being tormented, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received good things and Lazarus, like manner, all evil things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so, and no one can cross from there to us. He said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may warn them so that they will not also come into this place of torment. Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. 
And then he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So, this week, we continue our sermon series entitled, Would You Be Mine? The Art of Neighboring. Over the last few weeks, we've learned to walk slowly through our surroundings and explored what it means to connect with others intentionally. We have examined the importance of setting tables, those sacred spaces where we share the gift of fellowship and create a community. We have discussed the essential, yet sometimes tricky task of peacemaking. And last week with Rev. Mark, we learned how to plan a real party. This week, our theme revolves around the idea of bridge building. Now, beloved, when I drew this card out of the preaching deck, I thought, well, that's easy enough to understand. Let me see, what is a bridge, I thought. Get a dictionary. According to the dictionary, a bridge is, quote, a structure built over something, water, low place, railroad, so people can cross. A bridge also joins or connects something like the bridge of your nose, yeah? Are the bridges of a culture, one culture to another. Well, that makes perfect sense, right? And let's be honest, let's be honest. The idea of bridge building sounds quite appealing in our modern times. Most of us in this room, even online, experience the relentless stress of a highly polarized society that insist on binaries and this or that and us and them mindsets. I imagine we feel a bit like Lewis and Clark on their westward journey when they encountered some unexpected mountain ranges. We sometimes wonder how we will ever traverse the obstacles that are before us as we strive to create connections and communities that reflect God's kingdom. Ever ask yourself that? with a person, with a place? How in the world do I get from here to there? And then I read the scripture for this week. Really? Really? Did I go from talking about a garrison, demoniac, suicidal swine, and freaked out crowd of locals to this? I mean, if you remember the last time I was up here, we had an incident that was just downright confusing, even alien to our modern ears. And this week, our reading is problematic for a different reason, because it seems painfully clear. Hoard wealth in this life and suffer the consequences in the next. Amen. Enjoy a donut on your way out. <laughs> or is it that simple? Let's review the story. Once upon a time, there was a rich man who ate and dressed very well. He lived in an opulent mansion surrounded by a large and secure wall at the gate outside. There was a poor, diseased man named Lazarus. Now, public service announcement. Um, this Lazarus, Luke's character, is certainly not the same person that Jesus resuscitated in John's gospel, two different Lazaruses. Lazarus was starving and begging the rich man for food, not just any food from the man's table, but only the food from the floor, the dog scraps. Weeks went by, the rich man kept ignoring poor Lazarus and Lazarus kept getting sicker, weaker, hungrier. Eventually both men died. Fast forward to the afterlife. Lazarus is in heaven 
and the rich man is in Hades, which most Christians amalgamate to mean hell. And after some superficial begging on the part of the rich guy to obtain relief from his suffering and warn his wayward siblings on earth, Abraham, who is cradling the poor guy in his arms, flatlines the rich guy's request, and the story ends with a deafening silence, period. So there you have it. The rich man who doesn't care about the poor goes down, and the poor man who is forced to beg goes up. The end. <laughs> Maybe not so fast. You know, texts, biblical texts in general, this one in particular, can't be summed up with a paragraph or two of quick and dirty interpretive moves that reduce narratives like this to simplistic binaries between rich and poor, the rich go down, the poor go up. The text, I think, is far more engaging. It, it deserves more than reducing it to the tired old trope of morally bankrupt rich against the innocent poor. So what's going on here? Let's, let's dive in together. What makes sense in this text? Well, we first need to establish that the text presents in a particularly literary form that of a parable. I think it's helpful to remember that a parable is a very unique genre of literature set apart from fables or antidotes or allegories. Now that's not to say that they can't convey a message, a moral message like a fable or illustrate a larger point like an antidote or even reveal hidden religious and political meanings like an allegory. In fact, parables can do all those things in the Bible, but they can also do none of those things. More than simple literary devices, biblically speaking, parables are meant to offer us a glimpse into the kingdom of God, snapshots of how God does things in God's realm as opposed to how we do things down here. And I have to tell you, beloved, the difference between those two is sometimes surprising and always jarring, always jarring. New Testament scholar and Jewish uh, person, um, Dr. Amy Jo Levine, writes that by using parables, quote, Jesus was requiring that his disciples do more than listen. He was asking them to think as well. What makes the parables mysterious or difficult is they challenge us to look into the hidden aspects of our own values and our own lives. They bring to the surface these unasked questions. They reveal the answers we have always known but refuse to acknowledge. Our reaction to them, she writes, should be one of resistance rather than acceptance. If we hear a parable and think, well, I really like that, or worse, fail to take any challenge, well, you're just not listening well enough. So what's going on here, I ask again? How are we to make sense of this text? Well, look, there's absolutely no question, no question that Luke was tremendously concerned with the proper use of wealth. Both the gospel and Acts have that as a major theme, offering manifold examples of both good and poor use of wealth. That's going on here. However, I'm not so sure that he was trying to settle issues about the afterlife, let alone eternal punishment. This is a parable after all. Let's not forget, metaphorical, exaggerated, even hyperbolic language is a norm here. As such, I'm not so sure that the author of Luke intends to uh, describe heaven's furniture or um, talk about the temperature of hell. In this regard, um, I think the parable reminds me of a little story that Swiss theologian Karl Barth once had um, when one of his students came and asked Barth whether the snake literally spoke in the Garden of Eden. Barth responded, the important point is not whether he spoke, but what he said. <laughs> All right? Yeah. Gotta be careful. 
I'm glad that sunk in a little bit. <laughs> I also want to be clear that none of this tempers Luke's counsel and concern regarding wealth or Luke's focus on reversal that Rev. Amy talked about. The parable of the rich man and Lazarus narrates the very reversals of fortune that we find plastered all over this gospel. Remember Mary in chapter 1 and the beautiful Magnificat? As she stands up and sings out, he has brought down the powerful from their thrones. He has lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty, she sings. Even the Sermon on the Plain that we heard a little bit about last week, as Jesus looks out at the crowd and proclaims, Blessed are you who were poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. It's all over. As such, the parable drives home Luke's relentless concern for the faithful stewardship of goods. That's there. Justice is presented, in this case, as a balancing of the scale. Those who have suffered in need are made full, and those who have reveled in excess are left empty, the parable says. However, as I prayed and I thought about this little ditty this week, what kept coming back to me is Luke's counsel in the form of his direction, the direction of his counsel. That is, what if this is a parable not really about the afterlife, but rather about our lives right now? Not so much then, but now. Two things in particular persuaded me to lean in this direction. I want to share them with you. First, this chasm. This chasm between the rich man and Lazarus really isn't new when you think about it. Indeed, that chasm was fixed a long, long time ago. It was reinforced every single time the rich man came and went from his sumptuous abode to feast at his rich table and ignore Lazarus. I mean, he obviously knew Lazarus. Did you catch that? He understood his plight. He called out him by name. He called him out by name in the afterlife. So he knows Lazarus. He knows he's there. He knows his plight, yet he does nothing. Further, even in the afterlife, the rich man continues to treat poor Lazarus as a non-entity. Did you hear the words? As a servant who should fetch him some water or failing that be sent as a messenger to his brothers. In both his earthly life and in the life to come, the rich man refuses to see Lazarus as a person, as a human being, a fellow child of God. And so he ignores him. He ignores his plight. What this parable adds, I think, to the general injunction of generosity is a narrative in which the very proximity of the rich and the poor come to the foreground. Did you see it? Rich and poor are not left as some vague generality, but are depicted as two distinct men, one inside the gate of abundance, one outside. And their proximity, I think, accentuates the fact that Lazarus just seems flat invisible to the rich man. It's striking. Even after death, when the rich man gazes across the abyss to see Lazarus in Abraham's bosom. I, I love this. He speaks of the poor man in the third person as if he's not even there. I wanted Lazarus to stand up and go, uh, excuse me, dude, hello, I can hear you. You know what I mean? Have you ever done that with somebody that talks about you in the third person and you want to stand up and go, excuse me, Amy, I can see you and I can hear you. Don't talk about me like I'm not here, right? That's what's going on here. And I have to tell you, beloved, seeing in this gospel, 
is a huge deal, a huge deal. Because before you can have compassion for people, you have to see them, acknowledging their presence, their needs, their gifts, and above all, their status as children of God worthy of respect and dignity. And this the rich man utterly fails to do. And this may be Luke's point on along. Less a warning about punishment in the next life, but urging us to abundant life in this one that comes only in seeing those around us as God's beloved children, deserving of our care, attention, and fellowship. There's an ancient proverb by Confucius. He writes, everything, everything has beauty, but not everyone sees it. It seems to me that in the story before us now, the offense of the rich man is simply stated as this. He did not see Lazarus. Or at least he did not see him as anything more of an extension of himself and his own needs, particularly at the end. For if he had seen him for all that he was, once an infant and a boy, a brother, a husband perhaps, a father, maybe even a grandfather, if he had seen him as one with hopes and hurts, dreams and disappointments, if he had seen him as one beloved by God, maybe the story would have ended differently. I don't know, maybe that's where bridge building begins, by genuinely seeing the other. Maybe, as Revmark reminded us last week, this idea of belongingness that we all want so badly, maybe that begins by feeling like we are actually seen completely. All the bumps and bruises, scratches and scrapes, seen as we are fully and valued as such. Now, I don't want to get too preachy, but they did let me do it this week. You know, I think if we're honest, far too often, me included, others are simply invisible to us. As Lazarus was to the rich man, and look, no doubt countless others, as he sat there and begged at that gate. This little parable, which is ours this morning, I think is meant to speak to us about a simple truth, a truth that isolation and loneliness are not what God intended for our world. Jesus teaches today that all of our lives are caught up with one another's in ways that have consequences right now, and maybe even consequences into eternity. And if I see, if I truly see the other, perhaps that can be the start of living in a way that acknowledges the truth that we all belong to one another in this life, not then, this life right now. Beloved, I don't know much, but I believe down to the marrow of my bones that God created and sustains all of humankind out of a loving act of relationship. And as such, I would argue that being born out of a free relationship and sustained by it, that humankind is primarily marked by its desire and need to live in connection with others and driven again to connect with our creator. No one lives a full life in isolation. And look, we were never meant or designed to live in isolation. All growth, I would posit, all growth, physical and spiritual, occurs in the context of relationships, 
the primary mark of our humanity, is not found by simply exercising kindness towards our neighbor. Rather, our humanity finds expression, hear me now, because we have a neighbor. Did you hear me? That's why they're there. Our own humanity is found when we see the other and get in a relationship with the other. Regardless of any dissimilarity between one person or another, one group or another, they can and must exist in relationship with and for each other. Humankind, like I said, was created out of a relationship. It was saved by a relationship, and it's, it realizes the fullness of its existence by being brought into right relationships. Again, one of my favorite theologians, Karl Barth, oh, I just love Karl Barth. He writes, and you have to excuse the language, these are his words, a man without his fellows, are radically neutral or opposed to his fellows, are under the assumption that coexistence of his fellows has only secondary significance, is a being which is fundamentally alien, he writes, to the person of Jesus, and cannot have him as a deliverer or a savior. You see, in Karl Barth's mind, just as the person of Christ is for others, we should be for others. That assumes that we find value in others and that we never, ever lose sight of them. I mean, the fact of the matter is pretty simple. Without others, we ourselves are incomplete. Bart goes on to explain that every supposed humanity, which is not radically and from the very first a fellow humanity, is in humanity, he writes. The text this morning presents us with the great moral challenge of seeing and then making visible the invisible suffering of the world. Indeed, I think this may be one of the most important moral challenges of the 21st century. I mean, after all, our global network of telecommunications allows us to be more aware of the world's suffering than ever before but we have become adept at ignoring the suffering that is right on our doorstep. Maybe, in fact, these two things are connected. The more we become onlookers, spectators upon the faraway suffering of others, the more helpless we feel to do anything about the pain and injustice before us. Despair, cynicism, tempt us to close our eyes to the suffering and shut down our overloaded sympathies. You ever, you ever done that? You all know what I'm talking about, don't you? You ever just left your house and, and you know, it's just, I see so much of it on the TV, preacher. I just don't want to see it when I go to the grocery store, right? I read so much about the despair in the paper, I just don't want to see it when I go to the mall. You know what I mean? What's surprising to me is that's not a new phenomenon. <laughs> Going all the way back to the third century, St. Augustine of Hippo writes in his Confessions, he analyzes his own attraction to plays of that time that depicted tragic and sorrowful events. He notes in his confessions, quote, in the, capacity of, in the capacity of spectator, one welcomes sad feelings. In fact, the sadness itself is the pleasure. Next, Augustine asks, how real is the mercy evoked by fictional dramas? The listener is not moved to offer help, but merely invited to feel sorrow. I wonder whether our capacity for global communication creates a similar result producing spectators who are invited to feel sorrow but not move to offer help. I mean, after all, it's just one click away, right? And off we go to another website. And off we go to another channel. The parable challenges us not simply to share our wealth, but to become attentive to the poor and suffering persons who are before us, who dwell at our doorstep, more likely maybe in another part of town where we 
don't see them or we don't want to. I guess that's my question this morning. Where is the invisible suffering in our world? And it's there, trust me. We live within political and economic systems that feed upon the sufferings of others, all the while keeping that suffering invisible. And I think this morning that what we're hearing is the call of Christ to refuse any longer that convenient fabrication. I read a story this week from a Presbyterian minister about a trip he went on over spring break one evening. They brought a handful of individuals experiencing homelessness and formerly homeless men to tell their stories to the kids. He remembers clearly a moment when one of his friends asked a man what to do when a person on the street approached them and asked for money. I love his answer. He said that we should do what we feel like doing. If you give them money, be fully aware, he said, that it may be used for food, but it may be as well used for something else. He said to follow your gut when you make that decision. But then he added something that this ministry would never forget. He said, say yes or say no, but treat me like a person. We spend our whole day not being seen. Don't pretend like I'm not there. In a world that has grown increasingly divided, polarized, even segregated by cultural, political, theological, and social distinctions, a sense of connection seems ever more elusive. Regardless of where you live these days, our common context seems to be one of chronic isolation. And that isolation leads to a type of spiritual homelessness. I mean, we're busy living our own lives after all, comfortably detached from one another, unaware that we need one another if we are ever to be most fully at home in this world. And I think we usually cope with spiritual homelessness in one of two ways. It's either indifference to the stranger, expressed in both unconscious and deliberate ways, or hostility to the stranger, manifested both subtly and sometimes blatantly. In the end, because we do not know them, we ultimately fear them, even seeing them as a potential threat to our safety, our religious beliefs, our ideals and values, even to our very way of life. All of it, friends, fear, separation, alienation. That, that's the only result from all of it. So what are we to do? Well, I'm going to say something that might be a little controversial, so you can turn your tape recorders on now. Look out now. I do not. I do not believe the prescription we need calls for mere gestures of politeness, our terminal niceness, our so-called random acts of kindness, or even solitary adherence to the golden rule. Those are all good things. You need to do all those things. The solution to the distance that's growing between us and them, the antidote to indifference is hostility, is not just to do more. It's to get out more to see more, to listen more. You remember the definition of a bridge? A structure built over something so what? People can cross. Something that joins or connects, like a bridge between cultures. I guess the question that I want to ask you is, is are we building connections that allow us to move toward each other? Because that's what a bridge does. 
novelist, poet, theologian, and minister Frederick Buechner. He once wrote, if we are to love our neighbors before doing anything else, we must see our neighbors with our imaginations as well as our eyes. That is to say, like artists, we must see not just their faces, but the life behind and within their faces. I wonder, I've been wondering all week, where can we cultivate conversations to practice listening so as to understand rather than listening so as to respond? How might we hear one another's stories across racial boundaries, socioeconomic boundaries, or other cultural boundaries? Can we see them? Are we listening? Are we looking, actively looking for the Imago Dei, the image of God that dwells within each and every one of us? One rabbi wrote that the supreme religious challenge today is to see God's image in one who is not in our image. This parable, beloved, isn't about earning or relinquishing some eternal reward. It's about the character and quality of our life right now. One might even argue that for Luke, eternal life isn't some distant reality at all, but rather starts right now, today, each time we embrace the abundant life God offers in and through those around us. So yes, while it is certainly a warning not to overlook those around us in need, it is also an invitation, I think. An invitation to build bridges, to live into fuller, more meaningful and more joyous life by sharing ourselves, our time, our talents, and certainly our wealth with those around us here and now. For as we do, as Luke reminds us, we live into the life and the kingdom of God outlines in the law of Moses, clarifies in all of the prophets, and makes manifest and available to all in the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. If you'd like more information about our church or our vision to eradicate social isolation and disconnection by practicing the faithful presence of the incarnate Christ, please visit GoStAndrew.com. See you next week.